This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Undersea Dunwich. Golnara Karimova. Professionalism. And Anne Boleyn. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The ping of the hydrophone, the dweep of the thing that moves across the screen in the hydrophone, and all the other noises <laughs> the hydrophone makes tell us that we are entering an undersea version of the cartography hut. Robin, what's down there that justifies risking getting all of our compasses and charts wet? Uh, about a year ago, cartographers and oceanographers uh, joined forces to map out the town of uh, Dunwich in Suffolk, in northern England, which over the years has been swallowed by the sea. And uh, we'll post a link uh, on the blog post associated with this podcast. You can uh, click on over to uh, I think it's the BBC and uh, see the cool map of this uh, village that they managed to come up with by combining uh, more conventional mapping techniques and also echolocation. And so what happened with this uh, village, which was once not a village, it was once a thriving seaport that kind of uh, rivaled London, it sort of underwent a process of 
destructive reverse erosion insofar as in uh, the 13th century, there was this massive storm that blew silt from the ocean up onto the, the shore. Big swaths of the, the town were destroyed and the river mouth silted up. And so after that, slowly with other storms, uh, the sea ate away at more and more of this town. Uh, so by uh, 1736, it still, for example, had this uh, beautiful church with this big handsome tower. And then by 1912, only the tower was left and it was just teetering on the edge of a precipice and then finally fell down into the sea to be uh, discovered now uh, with this um, mapping technology. So uh, first of all, it's a really cool map uh, that's worth looking at, which is uh, a whole big chunk of why we have a cartography hut. And also the mythic possibilities of this story are vast. And so I thought we could riff different uh, story ideas uh, from that. And I guess the most obvious one is to answer the question, what did Suffolk do to anger the sea so much that the sea ate Dunwich? And so what uh, possible reason do you think that it had for uh, angering the sea like this and causing the, the vengeance of the ocean to uh, blow silt on? Well, I think, first of all, when you uh, have a town named Dunwich that suffers some sort of occult damage, I think you and I both know what it did. It got up to some sort of Yogg-Sothoth business, and uh, they weren't able to sort of keep their magical uh, juju contained. And when Yogg-Sothoth showed up, that's what blew the, the seawall down and, and wrecked them. The other possibilities, of course, are that um, there was a, a, a primordial deal made with uh, some sort of sea entity, possibly Nodens, possibly Njord, maybe even Poseidon, if you want to be all classy classical about it, and that someone, you know, reneged on it. They, they stopped throwing the seven virgins into the water the way that you're supposed to, and sure enough, just like in the legend of Ys, uh, the sea god gets mad and he says, I'm going to shut you down and, uh, and bury you under the waters. There's a good part of that sort of Celtic drowned city uh, myth-making that has been myth-made about Dunwich, which was probably not Celtic. In fact, one of the interesting things about Dunwich is that it seems to have been the only urban foundation of the Anglo-Saxons. It does not have a uh, Celtic or Roman, or even a Roman existence. There is a, there's no record of a Roman port there, although the Roman road in the area sort of points toward Dunwich as though they were going somewhere. It's just that the Romans never bothered to write down the name of the city or port at the end of that road, which is itself, I think, a little bit significant and interesting. It should perhaps come as no surprise to anyone that I have written a little bit about Suffolk Dunwich in Dubious Shards, so if you're interested in more along that line, I recommend that. I'm going to try and avoid recycling that whole piece because we're talking more, I think, about the fun cartographic and cartomantic aspects of this than just the specific, you know, messed up nature that is Dunwich itself. Although if you're interested, Brian Stableford has a crazily good story called The Womb of Time, which is set in the village of Dunwich, and it connects it up with... Uh, Algernon Swinburne, who is a big uh, Dunwich uh, obsessive as well. So if we have an adventure that's about the process of uh, mapping the now undersea portions of Suffolk, that, of course, brings up the obvious idea that uh, the ocean wanted that covered up and didn't necessarily want it uh, revealed. So you could certainly do an adventure either as the investigators who come to discover why all of the map makers uh, are going crazy or have uh, disappeared or have been found horribly mutilated. And then uh, you can then discover whatever it is, what horror 
horrific truth uh, lies in the map. And then uh, if you're talking about uh, the Ezoterrace, how to cover that up, or if you're talking about uh, Trail of Cthulhu, just how to keep that thing down there, how to uh, keep it from coming back. Uh, you may have to sacrifice more things to the ocean in order to uh, satisfy it. You might have to uh, drive uh, some caravans over the cliff in order to uh, appease its desire to eat the structures and buildings of the shore. Another possibility is that um, there's not necessarily a supernatural component to the flooding. The flooding is just flooding as it, as it happens, although you can allude to possibilities, but that the map is uncovering something because Dunwich was a, had a Templar commandery at one time, and so maybe the Templars brought something back from their uh, foreign uh, travels and put it in their commandery, and now one of the key things about this map is that you can find the Templar commandery, and you can, uh, with, um, I don't even know what you would necessarily use because the water is too silty and horrible for a submersible, but maybe you have some sort of specialized amphibious vehicle that you can drive down with great big huge treads so it doesn't sink into the silt, or you've got um, guys going down in, in just uh, frogman outfits with rebreathers so they don't have to keep coming up, and they just are clearing out the silt with um, uh, some sort of compressed air gun and trying to use that to get to the Templar commandery so that they can rescue this artifact, and it becomes sort of a Tomb Raider-y, Indiana Jones-y sort of looking for the artifact type thing, and then you can say, well, this map that's here in the pages of the Guardian is obviously the cover map that has been put out by the Templars because the real commandery is, you know, three blocks over or whatever. And one of the things that you do when you get to the site is you find the, the actual cartographer sitting drinking in a, in a pub and muttering about those bastards from home office that, that shut him down and, and wouldn't let him publish his map. And when you talk to him, he's like, and their map is stupid and wrong and the Templar commandery is actually on the other side of the, of the, of the channel or something. And so you're, oh my God, that's the cover up. And then you have to figure out who in this huge, and because obviously there's tourists and people who go to Dunwich all the time anyway, um, who in this crowd is the secret Templars uh, trying to get their stuff out of the out of the commandery before enough open source work has been done to prove that the first map is wrong. And uh, we've toyed on the podcast before with the idea of the magical map, where uh, mapping something gives it uh, power and importance. And so the, the question there is, if we re-add this sunken city of Dunwich to the map, what magical overall effects does this have on, on the region or uh, even on the world? Uh, how do, uh, you know, do people in the nearby area start dreaming about their sea neighbors who are uh, dwelling below? And uh, do they uh, perhaps start to envision another existence for themselves if they uh, lived underwater. And maybe, you know, in a Trail of Cthulhu thing, that, of course, would suggest that somehow the process of mapping this and uncovering this has stirred the deep one blood that is laid uh, long submerged in people's veins, and now they're yearning to fully express that nature and head back to the sea. Or you could go for a sort of a more Borgesian approach where people uh, go from imagining what this uh, other Dunwich would be under the sea to uh, finding that a more vivid and, and true uh, life. And they, you know, people might, uh, you, you might have sort of a modern uh, sort of magic realist adventure where uh, people have begun to flock to the sea and they just live like normal people under the sea and, and a new aquatic race begins to spread. The first ones are the people who go from uh, the land to the sea in Dunwich, but then once 
people start to learn how to do it. Uh, there's a, a massive move of people to colonize the sea, and this is, you know, threatening to uh, world authorities, and uh, people are afraid that, uh, you know, what if we have two species on Earth, and they'll, well, surely this will result in a war between the, the surface and, and the water, and uh, what are you going to do about this once it starts happening? What do you uh, do with the uh, economic effects of uh, people leaving their, abandoning their homes en masse to... Uh, live under the sea, off the grid, uh, away from uh, civilization. Sort of a, a damp 1968. <laughs> the, uh, the other possibility is that uh, it is not so much Dunwich as a town that is important when it is re-added to our uh, mystical map, but Dunwich as a port, that whatever cargoes were trafficked with mystical ancient Dunwich, they couldn't have any more trade with the surface world or with our world, with the world of the living, uh, once Dunwich leaves the map. But when we've put the map back on, you start seeing, you know, boats coming over the North Sea containing, you know, the, the grave goods of the dead, if it's the traffic with the underworld, the way that I think it's, um, it was Procopius that believed that the, that Britain was the land of the dead. And so therefore, if Britain was not actually the land of the dead, that's ridiculous superstition. Britain was just where the land of the dead would show up and, and do their, their trade deals. Britain was kind of the Hong Kong uh, in, the, in the world of living where the dead kind of ran it, but they, you know, did all their deals with a, with a much larger outside world of the magic. But now that Dunwich is back on the map, uh, Pluto or Anwen or whoever he is can uh, start once again um, dealing, or Ron rather, can start dealing with us uh, openly and on an uh, up-and-up basis, and people start finding out that you can go down to Dunwich and buy an extra couple of few decades of life for your grandma, or you can buy an early death for your less popular grandma who happens to own, you know, a lot of uh, property in central London, or whatever it happens to be, and that all of a sudden you've got another batch of different possibilities because commerce with the dead is now allowed. And it doesn't have to be the dead. It could be fairies, or it could be whatever, but I think the dead is more fun and more interesting because it's the sort of thing that once you realize you could buy or sell death and life, everyone knows what they're going to do with that. Whereas if you or I were told, oh, you can buy or sell stuff from fairies, you and I would say, I don't know. Do I want any mithril? I guess not. I don't really need it. But we can all think, oh, okay, I'm definitely putting down some money to keep, uh, you know, uh, my wife alive. And whatever I got to pay, that's going to be, you know, I'm happy to do the business with you, Pluto. And that's why you need to buy the maps on the shore to mm -hmm. get into your scuba gear and, uh, uh, swim down in order to uh, negotiate with the dead. There's probably a whole uh, line of water impervious tablets that you can use to communicate with the dead. Uh, uh, they uh, obviously can't, you, you can't talk to them while you're wearing your uh, scuba gear, but you can sort of uh, type in messages and uh, you have to, you know, give them uh, tablets as well. And you probably want to keep them updated to the very uh, latest uh, version or they start to get uh, restive. So you could also have a sort of a satirical element of this world that we're developing where the uh, dead start to become corrupted by our own world and they crave of course all the things that uh, we have in life and take for granted well they've been you know just hanging about uh, beneath the waves uh, knee deep in silt all these centuries and uh, you know they don't want money but they want all of these different accoutrements of civilization what starts to happen when the you know the dead acquire enough wealth and goods and technology to start to do more than just uh, traffic in these favors, but then become again their own 
a separate culture that we have to come to terms with. Yeah, the the, uh, the old uh, Burkean uh, comment that uh, the vast democracy of the dead should be consulted in any decision suddenly becomes practical as opposed to uh, theoretical in that situation. They're all like, well, I don't know about joining Europe. Back in the ninth century, it wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if, if they have all the money, uh, yeah. uh, Germany may want to uh, bring them into the fold so somebody else has to pay the bill. And that's another possibility, right, is that, you know, if, if um, uh, the... If the town of the dead is not in a in a sort of thriving first world uh, country like Britain, but is instead one of these uh, submerged cities that sometimes shows off off the coast of Sri Lanka, or that you suddenly see one off the coast of, uh, there's been a lot of subsidence in uh, Southeast Asia, in uh, maybe off the coast of East Africa, you could have something. And then it's hold on, what if the dead can actually, you know, just buy this country outright? What if they are expanding their power, or what if, you know? The United States and China are now competing for, uh, you know, access to the dead in the same way that we'd be competing for uh, strategic sea routes or minerals or anything else. Uh, well, I think we've uh, given people, what, about uh, six adventure seeds and uh, three campaign hooks. So I think we've done our job in this segment and can move on to the next one. And once again, it's time for Ask Ken and Robin. This week, Johand de la Lande, uh, also known as Princess Brown Wheat of the Hill Folk, asks, I'm currently writing a Knight's Black Agents scenario for a convention using Uzbekistan's presidential family. What is your take on Gulnara Karamova's claims that her mother and her sister used black magic to ruin her careers as a singer, fashion model, entrepreneur, and politician? And how would you implement this in a scenario. Ken uh, Gulnara, also known as Gugushka in her pop artist incarnation, is uh, something of a renaissance woman of kleptocrats. Uh, what did you find about her as you uh, researched this answer? Well, she is a party waiting to happen. Um, if you have ever wondered what it would be like if Paris Hilton ran a country, that is what Gulnara is up to. She is as you say, a fashion icon, a, a music, uh, a pop starlet, a entrepreneur, a money launderer par excellence, a contemptible human being on every level, and is currently under investigation by, I think, three or four different jurisdictions for various uh, crimes and misdemeanors committed out here in the civilized world. And, and may already be in prison back at home, it's not clear. Well, yes, that's the magic of having uh, your dad be a uh, horrible dictator. And so the... Um, and, and so there's a situation where, I guess, she and her sister are rivals and, like, Lola is the good one or something. She works with refugees, but that's probably a scam, too. Um, and so they're all accusing each other of, of various corruption. And then Gulnara accused Lola and her mother of doing sorcery, uh, which is, uh, of course, the, a sort of standard thing that you accuse people of in Islamic societies, like Uzbekistan is. Um, and that is, uh, according to what I found... The specific forms of the sorcery were the strange practice, according to Gulnara Karimova's Twitter. Who knows anything about the strange practice of making star and triangle-shaped candle installations and constantly repeating something? I am worried for my mother. What is it? Twitter responded, it's Satan, it's the devil, it's the jinn, it's bad news, it's sorcery. And that is the big uh, accusation that the reason that everything is not going, turning up roses for Gulnara is not that people are tired of her uh, unique sound and 
bizarre look, but they are being hoaxed, hexed, hocused, rather, by uh, uh, Uzbek sorcery, and uh, that is what's preventing them from giving her what she is due. I guess in the sense of where you go from there, there's all manner of possibilities. I see Johan wants us to do Knights Black Agents, but this people is as natural a real-life drama system game as you're ever going to get to play <laughs> the uh, all the members of this uh, corrupt and uh, uh, evil presidential family and the, the people around them. Uh, you could uh, go to town having your soap opera version of this uh, story and playing it out in drama system. There's um, a, a lot of, uh, I think, one analyst compared um, uh, the Uzbek uh, presidential family uh, to sort of a King Lear situation where there's the dictatorial father who is beginning to lose his touch and the, the daughters who are both ambitious and trying to take over after he's gone and the widow who's worried that her position goes away after he dies. And so there's there's a strong dramatic impulse. I actually thought you were going to go with esoterrists, that um, Gulnara, by accusing uh, her mother and sister of black magic, is either an esoterrorist trying to uh, open up uh, the veil uh, as people sort of look into Uzbekistan and, and see the, the abyss reflected back at them. Increasing people's belief in the uh, occult uh, thins the membrane between us and the outer dark. Especially out there in, the, in Central Asia, where all of the old certainties are being swept away. Or conversely, is a victim of esoteric ops against her, and that she and that's the twist that I think would be fun, is that she actually is a really good fashion designer and pop star. And when you meet her, she's sort of like, you know, she may not be a, a particularly, you know, wise Gandhi-esque leader, but maybe she's more like a Britney Spears. She's obviously been toyed with and manipulated by vast forces and put into this position, and she's just sort of a, a simple-minded innocent who's wandering through this situation. It's like, I don't know, I, does anyone know what all these candles and, and, and triangles and squares mean? Oh, black magic, oh, that's terrifying. Maybe my sister's in black magic, too. And so... Rather than being sort of a, an evil manipulatrix, as one would like her to be in the sort of Paris Hilton uh, model of this, she becomes the innocent victim, and then you have to sort of dig, you know, go actually into Uzbekistan and find out what is uh, what is going on. Who, what is the goal? Because obviously they didn't want this sorcery to get out. What's their real goal? It's not to just thin the membrane by making people believe in black magic. They're actually going to try and, you know, s swap Uzbekistan onto the other side of the veil, perhaps, and have a whole country that exists on the other side of the veil that's basically part of the outer dark. Well, and, and the esoterists themselves are, are just pursuing personal power and their own tastes uh, as corrupt as it may be, or their personal agendas, or they, they can be seeking uh, wealth or fame, and they see you know, bringing in the, uh, thinning the membrane and getting greater access to magic, right? They all want to be sorcerers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, uh, that's a means to an end for a lot of them. So you could just have, you know, a group of people in the presidential palace be members of an esoteric soul and they are, they are thinning the membrane in order to get rid of her rather than the other way around. Oh yeah, right. That's another possibility. But uh, we've been asked to do this for Knights Black Agents. We have. All right. Uh, in terms of Knights Black Agents, I think that what you have to start. I, I, I have to. I almost want to say that in Knights Black Agents, the black magic should be a diversion. That it shouldn't be the real thing. That if your vampires are magical, then obviously what's happening is that Islam Karimov or um, his wife or one of the daughters is 
a magical vampire or is made a deal with a vampire spirit or it, 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 but that seems very straightforward and ordinary and i you could use it maybe to set up like a con scenario where the real goal is to get into the uzbek presidential palace and shoot the place up and get away with the MacGuffin or kill the, the the vampire that's living at the heart of the thing and is trying to run a whole country uh with its um uh, vampiric powers um you might use the akimu from um uh, double tap as as the specific vampire because that has sort of a near eastern uh capacity i don't know if there is a specific uzbek vampire legend uh, that you can hijack for this, but I, I almost want to say that the that that's that's a a, a double blind. That the the real thing that's going on is something left over from a Soviet super soldier program or something else, and that the 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 that what's actually happening is that the mom is desperately trying to foolishly try and hold this thing at bay using white magic to protect her family from the wrath of these angry communist vampires who are like. How dare you be running Uzbekistan instead of the people's uh, proletariat running Uzbekistan? And so you get in there and you're basically having to protect some of the worst human beings on the on the face of the earth from the actual monstrous undead. And maybe that's the, the, the big choice. What do you think? Um, I, I think that's brilliant because you could then have multiple layers where you first introduce the weirdness of the place and then you turn it on its head, right? That that's a, a big uh, a twist. And also, one of the characteristics of Knights Black Agents is that you might go in and have a whole bunch of different scenes in Uzbekistan, but also it's sort of a, a globe-hopping thing so that uh, the fact that this uh, woman, uh, you know, she was a ambassador to the UN for a while and an ambassador to Russia and her cell phone company that she denies ever having owned is now owned <laughs> by a big Russian company. And so you can have all sorts of other threads that can take you uh, all around the world as you begin to uh, piece together some weird conspiracy and then to find out you know, as your third act twist that, oh my gosh, this is Uzbekistan we've got to go to. This is the craziest of the crazy. Uh, and then you start to dive into all of this stuff and you've got the uh, bits and pieces of, of clues about, you know, magic within the family. And then you get the reveal that you mentioned where, it, you know, it turns out to, to not be that at all. It turns out to be something uh, even weirder than you expect. I, I should mention that there is a place in Uzbekistan called uh, Hell's Gate. It's a Darvaz. It's a big hole in the ground that is basically full of natural gas. And it, you know, opened up as a sinkhole or they, or they were drilling for, for gas and they found the cavern and someone lit it on fire. And so there's a giant hole in Uzbekistan that is full of hellfire. And so that can come up in the climax where you're fighting the bad guys, the vampires there on the rim of this flaring, uh, hell hole in the ground. And again, because the players know that it's a natural, phenomenon that can underlie the theme of these being scientific vampires, not magic vampires, and the magic was part of the um, part of the distraction, even though it still has that powerful, symbolic, infernal uh, charm to it, right? I, I think that's brilliant. Well, I think we've now added another uh, three or four adventures and or uh, campaign frames to our list of uh, such for this podcast, and it's time to move on to another segment.
clinkety-clink of quarters being tossed down on the table, the occasional ping of a PayPal account updating tell us we have entered the all-too-intermittent business of gaming. And here in the business of gaming hut, uh, the business of gaming is to be business-like. Robin, what business-like practices would you urge on our listeners? Right, so this could also be a how-to-write-good segment, but often when a RPG panel does not turn into a GM troubleshooting panel or when any writing uh, panel gets partway through into the Q&A segment, a lot of the questions are of the how do I get involved doing this? I will maybe want to do this for a living or as a sideline or whatever. And so the number one piece of advice I give to people who are aspiring to write role-playing stuff or to write fiction is that, well, particularly in role-playing, that the first priority is to be professional. And the number two priority is to be good. In fiction, those maybe flip over the other way. But in role-playing, very often you are creating stuff for an existing game line, at least when you're starting out. And that means that you are working within the boundaries of somebody else's creation. And you are, uh, unless you're working in a really sort of cottagey part of the industry, and the whole thing is a cottage industry in a way, um, there are deadlines that your publisher wants you to meet. They want stuff to arrive to a certain standard, and they want your the value that you add to the project to uh, equal what they're paying you. And so the number one thing that people should aspire to be if they want to uh, rack up a bunch of publications in role-playing or, for that matter, uh, do the crazy thing that I do and make a living at it is to be professional. So I thought we would break down uh, elements of uh, professionalism. I've alluded to a few of them. And uh, hitting deadlines... Uh, is uh, hugely important. Uh, People need stuff on time if they're going to keep their schedules uh, going. And if everybody uh, involved in a project is late, that can, uh, if everybody adds three months to the lifetime of a project, that means it's a year late. So uh, if you can get a reputation for not meeting deadlines, uh, that uh, automatically makes you a uh, highly desirable uh, commodity as a writer. And if you know you're going to miss a deadline, don't go silent. Don't have the developer or the publisher have to chase you to get an estimate as to when it is going to be delivered. But before you miss the deadline, be the person who reaches out, contacts your developer, and tells them, A, you're going to be late, and B, when they can now realistically expect to get it. And if you find yourself completely in the weeds, if you know that you're just going to have to bail from a project, if you know that you're not going to be able to deliver, admit that to yourself and give them plenty of advance notice to replace you or reschedule the project to a time when you can attend to it. I think another thing that is important, especially in terms of uh, writing to other people's design, and that's less important now in gaming than it has been because, of course, so many systems are open and so many uh, venues are open for your own designs that it, this, this is sort of advice that we are sending back in time. But I think it's good for, you know, magazine work or for any other sort of regular work where you are contributing to an ongoing project. I think that writing to spec, providing what the, they ask for instead of what you think it, the project needs, I think that's sort of a, a core competency. That, that's one of the reasons that I have done less of that uh, in recent years is because, in general, uh, I find writing to other people's spec less interesting than writing to my own spec. If you suspect that you are like that, you should 
you know, take a gimlet eye at the thing that you turned in to make sure that when the editor said, I want, you know, 10 different examples of uh, special crossbows, and you said, oh, crossbows are boring. I'll give them two really good ones and a bunch of, you know, glaives. That's not what they want. Maybe they had a bunch of glaives coming up in another supplement, or maybe they had glaives in the core book, or maybe it's just more important to them to get crossbows out because they've got, you know, a card game coming out in which everyone's got a freaking crossbow. You don't know why they're asking for 10 crossbows. Don't try and outthink the developer. Maybe you can, the time to worry about that is when they send you the outline. Maybe you write back and you say, I don't really have 10 good ideas for crossbows, and I don't think I ever will. Is it okay if I do glaives? And then they'll write back and say, no, we kind of need the crossbows. You, uh, I'll give the eight crossbow ideas to someone else, and you give me something that I'm taking from someone else's section. They can work with that if they know it ahead of time, but the thing they don't want to be doing is coming up with eight crossbows on their own because you didn't give them enough crossbows. Right, and, and what often happens when someone goes off spec in that way, especially for either uh, emerging role-playing writers or also people who are kind of doing it as, as a sideline for, for kicks, is that you may let your own fanish interests run away from you. Uh, you know, you might be interested in this one particular vampire clan more than the other, and so you may write, you know, 6,000 words on the one that you care about, or you may be trying to get, you know, introduce this continuity element into a world you love. Well, that's not what is being looked for. So make sure that you, uh, rather than changing the assignment so that it becomes the thing that you are passionate about, the... Number one of the main skills of a freelance uh, role-playing writer is to learn to be really passionately engaged with whatever it is that you're supposed to do so that you don't, you know, run away with, well, I I just got really interested in, in writing the, the history part of it, uh, so I made the history way bigger. Well, we actually wanted a short history. So make sure you, you uh, deliver on the specs. It can be challenging sometimes when um, very often the... A developer or publisher of a game will have certain assumptions about the style and tone of that game that may not actually be evident to you when you read their game. You may find out other elements in it that you want to emphasize in it and then find out to your surprise that that's not what they're looking for. And that's still a thing that can happen to you no matter what your experience level is. Often when you're, you know, doing your first assignment on a new game line, you will get uh, you will discover that your assessment of what the key elements of a property are are uh, quite different than what the developer is looking for. And, uh, you know, you the, the next time you do something, uh, you will have a better idea how to hit those. Or if it's something that you are not uh, comfortable or interested in doing, uh, you need to find another assignment. But, of course, that assumes you have the luxury of being able to pick and choose your assignments. And if you want to get to the point where you're someone who very often gets to realize their own vision and sort of be guiding other people to write supplementary material for it, you do have to go through the ranks of proving your professionalism and your reliability and the quality of your work before you get there. So there's always a point where you're uh, writing about more crossbows than you want to. Another strong evidence that you are a professional, uh, and this is sort of standard, but I think we should go ahead and give it because we're giving sort of standard advice. If there is a given format, if you are given a, a template to write to Steve Jackson Games has a, has a very sort of ornate template that they want you to use. Uh, White Wolf back in the day had one, and I'm sure Onyx Path has one still. Um, use that template. That is there for a reason. It's because that's how their production staff can, can flow it into the text most cleanly. That is how 
the the system uh, is is designed to work. Your notions of what is good, uh, what is best practice in terms of word processing, are irrelevant to what is best practice in terms of getting the book out with the minimum of headaches. And this is true if they say it was when you submit the thing, submit it in RTF with you know ten point courier font. And you're like, well, that's stupid. Ten-point courier font is ugly, and RTF is, is ancient. I'll just shoot it off in good old modern DocX, and everyone will be the winner. That's not there because they like the way that ten-point courier looks. That's the way to test as to whether you can follow even the most simple basic instructions. It's what we call a bozo filter. So if you're given these kinds of uh, requirements, meet those requirements, because that gives you leverage to then push back on the number of crossbows you have to write, because they're not assuming that you're doing it just because you're stupid, you have proven that you're actually able to follow instructions when they're, when they're given. And so anything like that, whether it's a, a, a template or a, or, a, or a document format or something where they want you to submit a thing in a, in a given uh, font category or using a, a given program, that's just that, that's, that, that's a, a way that they can avoid dealing with people who are going to give them problems later. So if you don't give them problems now, you can actually give them problems later if it's something more important than whether or not RTF is a valid uh, file format. Now, it, it, I will say that publishers that expect you to, to master, especially for a small assignment, a crazy amount of formatting and house style and delivering a house style, if I have a choice between assignments uh, from a, a client who is going to seriously increase the amount of time it takes me to uh, deliver something to them and a client who will then take a basic Word document and then turn it into their house style, uh, which is a, a usually a fairly simple process. And if they're not using some, you know, antiquated uh, version of WordStar from 1983 <laughs> to still. Uh, uh, do what they're doing. That, I'm going to go. That story has caused actual wounds in everyone who's old enough to have used WordStar. I think. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of these things where you're actually inserting the words header and brackets and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, that actually does color whether I take on assignment A or assignment B. Uh, but again, this is assuming that you're starting out and you don't necessarily have the the luxury of uh, being able to do that. So. Um, Often you, you hear the, the bozo filter thing, uh, which is about, you know, giving people instructions in order to, to filter them out. Well, there's all sorts of ways that you can filter yourself out, even in a company that does not leave in its arduous procedures and rationalize them as bozo filters. And the, the huge example, if you want to get, make a poor name for yourself and never get hired is the crazy query letter. Mm -hmm. um, everybody who gets together with a group of publishers or developers uh, can, can start to tell stories of the lunatic queries that they've gotten from people who are soliciting work from them, but they haven't learned the difference between abusive fan and <laughs> fun to work with professional. And you would think that this never happens. And maybe everybody who does this is completely beyond help and uh, is so completely deluded that, you know, they're doing a favor for publishers by red flagging yes. from the beginning. Yeah, this might be like advice. Don't stab the publisher at a con. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> anyone uh, you know, that don't... this actually helps is probably not the problem. Yeah. Or, or don't, you know, verbally stab yeah. the publisher uh, by, you know, with a query letter that says, you know, your previous take on uh, 
Crossbows is antiquated and stupid. Why don't you let an expert on crossbows rewrite your crossbow section for you? Uh, well, uh, that's not going to result in your getting hired, even if you are an expert in crossbows, and even if the previous thing on crossbows is stupid, because you're demonstrating that you're not a uh, fun, reasonable person to uh, get along with. And there are lots of ways that, you know, if the process goes along and you uh, encounter something that's part of a game line that you think you might want to adjust or something. There are diplomatic ways to uh, put that that make you seem like a professional. And there are uh, aggressive, clueless ways to put that that definitely get you put in the bozo filter. Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's sort of a broader thing, and maybe this is a whole different uh, uh, hut. But, you know, when someone sends a query letter in, and if there's any question about it at all, or even if there isn't, if the person... The, the developer wants to hire you, the literally first thing they're going to do is Google you. They're going to look for your blog. They're going to see, what else have you written about my game? What else have you written about other games that I know and admire? What have you written in the genre that I care about? If you're saying, I want to write for Knights Black Agents, I'm going to go and look, what have you written for Vampire? What have you written for other spy games? What have you written on the web that makes it look like you might be good or bad at writing for Vampire or spy games? And if in the course of Googling you, I turn up on your Facebook profile or your Twitter feed that you've been doing nothing but lambasting me or my company or a company that I happen to admire, you know, it, you know, it might not even be a company that I work for, but if you have been, you know, doing nothing but spewing vitriol about Savage Worlds, I'm not going to hire you to write for Pelgrane because obviously you have no boundaries. You're, you're, you're not a constructive, useful fan, no matter how interesting and uh, ap apropos your ideas on crossbows or vampires or their combination might be. And the, you know, it seems a little rough to say, you know, go back in time and scrub your, your, uh, your feed for all, examples of personality, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you want to be accepted by game publishers as a professional, you need to start approaching them as professionals who you want to be accepted by before you send that first query letter. You need to be contributing. Right, and another thing that's going to put people off is that if you assume that publishers have the same rivalries and factional hatreds as some uh, extreme fans do, so even if you're praising their game line, if your uh, your query letter says, you know, um, I really love your game. It's not like that horrible fourth edition, which was uh, created by jackasses and uh, half-headed mutants. Well, guess what? The people who worked on that game are probably also known to the publishers because it's <laughs> a small world. And publishers don't hate each other's games the way that some uh, fans assume that they do. And I've even had fans tell me to their to my face that, you know, ex-game professional uh, must hate why game professional because they worked on these competing game lines. And it's like, well, it didn't seem that way the last time I had a beer with both of them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's again, kind of weird, uh, delusional aggro behavior, but to turn that on its head into a do, if you're thinking of maybe starting to uh, pitch your services to people as a game writer, be involved in the communities of the games that you want to work for and make yourself known as a booster of those games so that uh, just as someone who's predominantly slagging things is not attractive to uh, someone who wants to work with you. Someone who's a booster of things, who's making things and doing things and uh, thinks role-playing is cool and is obviously enthusiastic and upbeat about it, uh, you're the person who uh, you, the developer is going to take a chance on, especially if you are involved in the community and uh, running games at a local convention or just being a, a frequent uh, commenter and somebody that, that you know. That's the way to... Uh, you know, if you're good, you can rise up 
pretty quick since the ladder is not all that high. It's three rungs at last count. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's the people who who do do that are people who are uh, uh, mutual and friendly and fun and positive and who demonstrate that they're interested in making things. Yeah, if you seem like the kind of person that is fun to interact with about gaming, someone whose job is to interact with you on gaming will be more likely to do it than if you seem like someone who treats gaming as some sort of burden that you're forced to bear by, you know, the accident of having been, you know, born in the late 1960s. That's not going to be nearly as interesting as someone who comes into any, even if it's not the game that you're writing for, but if you come into some other game and you're like, here would be a great thing that we could do with this awesome game. Here's a great thing you can do with Savage Worlds. Here's a fine spin we can do on uh, Nathan Paletta's game Carry. Here's a fun thing that we can do with Dogs in the Vineyard. Whatever the thing is, if you are contributing and boosting and adding to the game community, that's going to seem... As, that you're going to be the kind of person that someone says, yeah, I want that spirit and energy and optimism and positivity working for my game. And they may even be reading your blog for some other reason and say, yeah, that was actually a really good uh, thing. I wonder if that guy has any ideas for crossbows for my for my game. I, I'm going to write him and, and see what's going on. Or at least when I see him at a convention or I, I see his name again, you know, I'll be I'll be positively inclined to that guy. Now, standards of internet communication have slipped in terms of you know punctuation and and editing uh, because a lot of us are now working on tiny little devices. And I have to say that my emails have uh, are not as coherent as they used to be because uh, I'm sometimes working on them as a on a phone, and sometimes there'll be a semicolon where there should have been a colon, or I'll leave in a word that I meant to edit out. But um, when you are first approaching developers and publishers, uh, still make sure that you review your initial contacts with them so that what you're writing is in a really good, almost sort of publishable level uh, English. And then, you know, once they get to know you, you can uh, slip back into terser or gnomic emails that have the occasional typo in them. Yeah. Um, I, again, I think that it, it does seem unfair because everyone's email looks like, you know, a bomb went off in it. Mine is certainly no exception. But when you are writing as a when you're writing to someone who you want to pay you to write, the writing that you do for them should be better than the writing you do normally. And that's true anyway. I mean, the writing that you do for their game should be better than the writing you do on your blog. The writing that you do for the query letter should be better than the email you send to your buddies to say, hey, when are we going to get together and play, you know, Hillfolk or whatever, right? It's just, you take that next little step, and by dint of the fact that so few people are taking that next little step, that little step is going to count for a lot more, because you you get an email with, with periods and capitalization used correctly, and a actual salutation in the beginning, instead of just vomiting right into the subject matter of the email, that's that's going to set you apart. You're going to be making nothing but a positive impression. No one ever was turned down for work because someone said, oh, no, his email was too good. That was too <laughs> well-written and, and polite. I hate that. That That's never been thought. And, and I think that's a way to put a button on this segment, which is that, you know, we have been uh, saying a lot of things here, but that if you do all of these things, if you are on time, if you're collegial, if you write to spec, if you are uh, good, if your communication is effective, uh, you will already actually have a leg up on a lot of other people. And that uh, if you can muster basic professionalism, you will be a rare bird and you can do well pretty quickly because uh, the uh, number of game companies and game lines is not 
contracting at this time uh, in a way there are more opportunities than ever because of uh, Kickstarter and uh, uh, PDF and all of these other new ways of getting games to people. So there are lots of opportunities out there and people talk to each other. And if you can demonstrate all these different aspects of professionalism, uh, you will not just have a, a leg up, you'll have a big advantage. And when we put a button on it, that means that we have pressed that button to rotate into our next hut. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tells us that we've once more entered the proximity of Ken's time machine, the vehicle that he uses to travel back into history to bend, fold, mutilate, sometimes even spindle it. And this week, Ken, Time Incorporated has asked you to rectify one of the great instances of railroading in its non-role-playing context, and that was the instance that led to the beheading of Anne Boleyn. Ken, how do you clear Anne Boleyn? And first of all, what do people need to know about her and her trial in order to put your actions in context? Okay, I guess the first thing that everyone needs to know is that Anne Boleyn was more important than just being the side piece Henry VIII wanted to get with. If that was all it was, then then nothing would have been played for as high stakes. The stakes would not have been nearly as important. Henry had a a lovely affair with her uh, sister Mary, and no trouble, no problem. But Anne, first of all, held out for being queen instead of just a mistress, which is all down to her good thinking. But because uh, Catherine of Aragon, Henry's wife at the time, would not give him a divorce, he had to, and the Pope would also not give him a divorce, Henry had to turn England Protestant. And it is perhaps an oversimplification to say that the Church of England is the sole creation of Henry wanting to nail Anne Boleyn, but it is not an undersimplification, certainly, to say it. And so the question of whether or not Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was illegitimate and whether Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn was legitimate become absolute questions of not just life or death, as with anything in the Tudor uh, monarchy, but life after death. This was the question of your immortal soul. If you bought Anne Boleyn's innocence, you were a Protestant. If you thought that Catherine of Aragon was hard done by, you were a Catholic, and you went to hell based on which woman you thought Henry should be sleeping with. And that is the ultimate crucial existential nature of the problem. And of course, Henry makes it worse when Anne Boleyn is not, has not delivered him of a male heir, and he is very, very worried that his by now completely tenuous claim to the throne, uh, he's been excommunicated by the Pope, remember, if he does not have a male heir to succeed him, the Wars of the Roses could start up again, England falls back into civil war, and he might even be overthrown in favor of another claimant with a you know, flourishing male line. The, the, the Percy's of York are still out there having kids all over the place, lots of tall, uh, dapper male heirs. Uh, going bananas here. So he is very, very worried that without a male heir, he is going to possibly be overthrown, definitely leave England in a state of civil war and and, uh, hellfire. So when he thinks maybe Jane Seymour can give him a male heir, and besides he's tired of sleeping with the same woman, he's been doing it for almost three years, goodness me, um, he then has to make up charges 
of adultery, incest, and sorcery so that he can railroad Anne Boleyn and have her executed so that he can marry Jane Seymour. So he can't just divorce Anne Boleyn, because if he divorces Anne Boleyn, then he's implicitly saying that his divorce from Catherine of Aragon doesn't count and we should all be Catholic again. And that is something that he can't say as a matter of public policy, as well as wounded, fat-headed pride. And so he, it is a matter of national security in some sense that Anne Boleyn be railroaded and executed for crimes so that he can then marry Jane Seymour and hopefully then have a male heir. And that's sort of the backdrop for this. The bottom line is that he, you know, accuses Anne Boleyn of, uh, of sorcery and incest and adultery. He has his tame prosecutors present the case. He packs the jury. She is found guilty. She is executed. Uh, end of story, along with a purge of all of her relations, as was the common practice in early modern monarchies anyway. So there, there are two takes on uh, what happens to Anne Boleyn. One of them is the one that you've laid out here, which is that uh, it's a very premeditated, very uh, geopolitical and personal move on Henry's part and is planned and he's uh, he picks the right minute to do it. The other one is that there is a weird crisis that suddenly crops up and he is uh, uh, events sort of swirl out of control and he's sort of forced into it when a court musician confesses after rumors start to swirl around the court that uh, he's uh, messing about with Anne and that he's sort of there's sort of a precipitate shift from just a few days ago where everything's hunky-dory to all of a sudden he's in a position where he has to move on this uh, confession that this uh, musician makes. And so how would you support the first instance, or, or rather, I guess in this case, since you, you go back in time, uh, what do you look for in order to determine just how premeditated a move it is? Well, I mean, I think that the, conf the specific matter of the confession it's relatively easy to determine whether or not, given my temporal travel abilities, whether or not uh, Mark Smeaton uh, was tortured or not to get his confession. Because if he was tortured, and even if the, the question was put to him in a certain way, his confession of having been Anne Boleyn's lover is no more reliable than the confession of some guy who's just come out of the basement of Lubyanka and said, no, I was working with the CIA, right? That is obviously going to be something contrived by the powers that be. So the fact that Mark Smeaton confesses this at this coincidentally useful time uh, geopolitically is, I think, you know, I would not put a lot of weight on that. And if I go back in time and I find, you know, uh, rack marks on Mark Smeaton's ankles, I think it's going to be pretty obvious what was going on there. If, in fact, Anne Boleyn, having tired of Henry, was getting her own piece on the side, that would be an interesting thing. And I think that the policy there, in terms of, of Time Incorporated, might be to provide unmistakable proof of her guilt so that she doesn't become this sort of martyred figure and then blight the succession going forward. That said, I have left out the most important thing about Anne Boleyn, which is that the daughter she had by Henry VIII turns out to be Queen Elizabeth I, who I think by any objective measure is probably the most capable, gifted, and just badass monarch in the history of monarchs. Certainly, as, as crowned heads of Europe, it's Elizabeth and nobody else in the running. She is such a tremendous head of state for England at such a vitally crucial time that removing Elizabeth from the time stream does more damage to England than any possible injustice done to Anne Boleyn might. And, and that's my worry right there. And so regardless of how this comes out, I'm going to have to keep going back 
to Elizabethan England and double-checking to make sure that everything's copacetic and that everything uh, continues to move forwards on, you know, your Shakespeare and... Uh, and, and Christopher Marlowe and similar fronts. So assuming that you can uh, still assure that Elizabeth will be the heir, uh, how do you clear Anne Boleyn? There's two ways to do it. I think that there's... I, I don't know that you can clear Anne Boleyn because, again, the prosecution once made is a national security prosecution. It has to go forward. The way to f save Anne Boleyn, as opposed to clear Anne Boleyn, is to make sure that her... Uh, son, with whom she is pregnant in January 1536, is born alive as opposed to stillborn. She miscarries that son shortly after Henry VIII has a bad jousting accident on January 24th, 1536. He's knocked off of his horse and he's unconscious for two hours, which some people say that it's that brain damage from that accident that turns him into the mean, bad wife executing Henry VIII that we all uh, know to hate, and it turns him into the big fat guy who eats turkey legs instead of the skinny... What's his name? John Rhys Davis? Uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers. Jonathan Rhys Myers. The skinny, handsome Jonathan Rhys Myers we know from the Tudors. And so the, the question of just preventing that accident, that might be an interesting first stop, right? I, I prevent that jousting accident, either nobble his opponent or in some otherwise make sure he doesn't get his bell rung in the tourney. And then we see if Anne doesn't miscarry. And if Anne doesn't miscarry, she bears a male heir and all the pressure is off, right? Everything's fantastic. And the brother of Elizabeth, who would then be king, at least shares the same genetic makeup that Queen Elizabeth does. And so you have an outside chance that King, you know, whatever his name would have been, King Henry IX, would have been just as good or just as, as valuable a ruler, or at least two-thirds as valuable a ruler as Queen Elizabeth was, and you don't do the same damage by having a strong-minded, beautiful, intelligent Princess Elizabeth who gets married off to the Duc d'Alencon in France or someone else to secure the English position that way. Or maybe marries um, uh, Philip of Spain, who she was actually betrothed to for a while, and you avoid the Armada that way and sort of prevent uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of reign of terror stuff that happened in the later reign of Elizabeth uh, I. So I think saving Henry from his jousting accident, then you take a look and to see whether or not he is still trying to get Anne executed. Um, either she still miscarries and then he tries to get her executed, or she doesn't miscarry, but he's still just being a serial killer and trying to kill her to get a new wife. That's when, you know, I go back again, and instead of saving him from his jousting accident, just make sure he never wakes up. And then Anne Boleyn becomes Queen Regent, and we sort of then have a whole different English uh, English histor history to get through for the next um, uh, 20 years before Queen Elizabeth can ascend to the throne. But making Queen Elizabeth even more paranoid is probably not going to hurt her performance once she ascends to the crown. Um, and, and if you have a, uh, a regency of Anne Boleyn and then a, a reign of Elizabeth I, you might have uh, even more uh, woman power uh, driving English history. Yes, Anne Boleyn was certainly not one of those sort of meek mistresses who sort of stands back and, and doesn't make a big deal. She was a uh, intelligent, very well-educated woman. She uh, had her own opinions on foreign policy, which were certainly no stupider than anyone else in Henry VIII's court. Uh, she, you know, was a she was she was the kind of person that when you look at Queen Elizabeth, you say, "Oh, all right, I see where she gets it." And the combination of Henry's sort of imperiousness and self-satisfaction. And, um, uh, and, and, and real sort of, um, uh, 
uh, self-possession and charisma, and you combine that with Anne's intelligence and dexterity, and, um, uh, and, and you can really see the, the Queen Elizabeth as the, as the blend of those two, which is why I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what her brother would have looked like. Although, if there's a risk of losing Queen Elizabeth, I would rather keep her and lose Anne Boleyn, and that's my recommendation of Time Incorporated. But there's a couple of places where you can mess with Henry's jousting accident, and maybe Anne stays alive, and she's, you know, Henry's queen for a great long time, and becomes, you know, again, a, a powerful queen, because she had that same sort of attitude at court. She's, you know, pushing back against Cromwell on a lot of things, but the sort of middle ground Protestantism that Queen Elizabeth implements as a reaction to the wars of religion that take place during Queen Mary's reign right before her, that's the sort of thing that Anne Boleyn might have implemented early as sort of an attempt to you know, unify the, 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 the kingdom because she's no, she's no idiot. She knows that she's on sort of, you know, pins and needles here with the population. So uh, when you go back to uh, the Tudor court, is there a, another ambiguous fact that you want to uh, clear up as a bonus along the way? Is there something that you would want to discover uh, when you go back there to uh, prevent the jousting accident? Well, there's the, the classic murder mystery of the um, uh, Tudor court, this is a little bit after the era, but it, there's Amy Dudley, who was the, the wife of uh, Lord Dudley. Uh, she died falling downstairs, and her death has been a big mystery. It'd be interesting just to pop into the upstairs garderobe or whatever and, and see if she's being thrown down by uh, down the steps by a, by a thug in, in the pay of Queen Elizabeth, or whether she actually does just trip and fall. Uh, that's that, that's not uh, that's not quite early Tudor, but it's but it's the big Tudor mystery that I think everyone who's a true crime fan is, is curious about. That'd be fun to clear up one way or the other. Well, uh, this would be a big change to this time stream if you uh, implement it. So uh, I guess you got to uh, go and uh, take care of different branches and trim different uh, historical threads. So uh, uh, it's about time that uh, you got on with that. And uh, we wrapped up this podcast. And you note that I've now made all of my stops at the Mermaid Tavern business expense. <laughs> yes, that's the number one rule is make sure it's all deductible. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep the plov on our tables by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or Sorcerer's Sister by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.